This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. From GreenViz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Facebook's climate change play, Walmart's electric fleet feat, passing the mic to female climate leaders, and why net zero is the next, next thing. It's much ado about nothing this week on 350. It's September 25th, 2020. Welcome to the Climate Week edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, back from two weeks away, finally, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Welcome back, Heather. Hello, Joel. What do you mean, finally? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, two weeks without you is like two months. Uh, we just missed you and uh, so glad you're back. It wasn't the same. Aww. You had two terrific co-hosts, and I had a lot of fun. <laughs> you were mostly mostly hanging around, hanging out around Midland Park, and some little side trips. Or did you go further than that? Yeah, mostly hanging out around my my home turf here. But I did manage to get to Saratoga Springs, which is a very lovely town, and a extraordinary hike in Mount Tremper, New York, which is near Woodstock, by the way. Uh, called the Giant Ledge. And it was just, there were many giant ledges, actually, just incredible views. And so I actually was outside a lot and got a lot of hiking in and, and just a lot of local exploring and lo- local New Jersey and New York history. <laughs> so it was wonderful. Thank you. And I, I missed you too. Well, glad you're back and glad you came back in time for Climate Week. Uh, it's been a pretty crazy week, lots and lots of activities. Uh, um, how how what do you think of Climate Week as virtual this time? And I'll tell you what I thought. Well, note to self: don't take the two weeks ahead of Climate Week off again in the future because I missed a lot. There's a, some a really cool corporate announcements, and also just it was tough to prep. But uh, you know, I I uh, I appreciate Climate Week because it helps me level set what I should be paying attention to in the months ahead. And I think uh, it was good for grounding me and, and, and kind of uh, confirming some of my intuition about the areas that I need to focus on. Number one, I, I really appreciated the focus on bringing science-based targets to, the, to all of these nature, <laughs> these nature conservation initiatives we keep hearing about. Um, this tree planting campaign, this biodiversity effort, 
Um, you know, we hear a lot of good, good announcements out there from, from companies like even Procter and Gamble and, and Apple and so forth about how they want to conserve nature, but there's never been really any science to it. It's been very kind of in, in, in my, my, my thinking haphazard. So, um, it was, I think, encouraging to see some science-based targets talk, uh, emerge this week for that and some, and some initial guide, initial guidance on, on how to make those targets. Um, and then also something that I've been thinking about a lot is just the industrial decarbonation challenge, right? So how do you make steel industries and um, mining and, and production, all these, these concrete, you know, is the big, is the big example. How do you make those processes more climate positive, friendly? I don't know. How do you make them way less bad? Um, and so, so, I was I was encouraged to see the talk about those two different topics. What about you? I know you were thinking a lot about the the zeros and the nothings. Yeah, a lot lot of zeros and net zero everything pretty much. I agree with you that this is it's a great focusing function week and a lot of companies and countries. I mean, China made a big announcement. Um, California made a big announcement this week about banning uh, the sale of, uh, of of gas powered cars by twenty thirty five. You know, with that. 15 years and lots and lots and lots and lots of corporate commitments. Um, <laughs> some big, not so, say, some though, not that, so big. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but there were the actual aspect of the conference online left a lot to be desired. I mean, there's nothing to compare to running around New York and I, I know that's not for everybody, but it's one of my favorite things going from place to place. And, and, and then all the collisions uh, that we have with the people, other people in our field who were running around the city and just, and then people we didn't even know were there. And it just, that those collisions are really critical, I think to this. And I, I'd love, I'm hoping that in future years, assuming this stays online in some fashion that, the Climate Week folks, and for that matter, the World Economic Forum folks. I went to their in, in, their Innovation Summit. Uh, went to a number of sessions this week. Do a little better on the uh, uh, just the online engagement because it was a lot of of reading of speeches and yeah, sure, some of the people weren't native English speakers, but some of them were, and they were still reading. It just was a little boring, I have to say. It, it was really hard to stay engaged and really hard to pay attention and is so easy to be distracted by pretty much anything else that was on my computer at that moment. Yeah, I will agree with that. Uh, I, I will take one positive thing out of that, though, is that I always feel at the physical event that I can't get to all of the things I want to get to. So I was able to dip my toe into more topics than I usually am. So I did appreciate that because um, there's only one of me and only one of you. And it's and I, I love learning and, and, and meeting new people and hearing new things. So I was able to do a little bit more of that than I, than I normally could. So I liked that. Or, or as I sometimes say to my wife, come on, I'm, I'm only three people. <laughs> anyway, let's move on and <laughs> dig myself out of that hole. And let's, let's start a whole new hole here called the Week in Review. Well, we talked about net zero briefly before, and I, there's this piece by uh, our friends at uh, Business Green about looking at the net zero commitments and how they have doubled uh, in just the past year. Um, and uh, there's 
the number of businesses that have set net zero goals has risen from 500 at the end of last year, at the end of 2019, to uh, 1,541. So that's tripling, actually. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've seen cities and countries uh, making these commitments. And so it sort of begs the question about, first of all, is net zero, what does it mean? And how are you defining it? Is there a standard for it? I don't believe there is. I know there's a number of organizations working on that. Uh, but at the same time, I love the ambition. Uh, the ambition is, is critical. And it wasn't that long ago, you probably remember this, Heather, that the big, hairy, audacious goal was 80 by 50, that we were going to reduce our emissions 80% by mid-century. Um, and, and at the time, those just seemed like, whoa, yeah, right, sure. But let's, it's nice to have a big, hairy, audacious goal. Now, first of all, those have been up to zero by net 50, or in some cases, zero by 2035 or 40 or, or some other year prior to 2050. And, and that's really impressive. So I love the level of ambition. I'm a little bit concerned that when everybody's talking net zero, that all of a sudden folks are using it for just about everything when it doesn't necessarily apply. I mean, what's your take, Heather? So I feel, I do feel like there has to be more discipline about what it means. Like there's no common nomenclature, you know, there's no common definition. I don't think, at least I'm not aware of it. So I do worry about that because people can use that term very broadly and, you know, kind of dance around if they don't deliver by that time, you know, dance around what they really meant. Right. So they're not saying something specific. So there's nothing really specific to hold them to. And I also, I, you know, I feel like there's some element of, dare I say it, greenwashing. I mean, it just, people are saying this again, but not, but not reporting on their, we're not reporting on their progress, but also not reporting on, on when they, they're having trouble. Like I, that's one thing I would like to hear more about is um, companies talking about where they're having challenges so that they can work together better to maybe overcome those challenges. Right. Because there's so, so many there's so many organizations that are kind of doing this on their own. How many of them are doing it together? I like the collaborative um, focus on this. I, and one of the things that um, I'm putting into that I put into our climate week uh, roundup this week was the one one of the initiatives that's coming out to help the supply chains Um get get on board so there's some companies that are they're pushing on that so like this these net zero does that mean scope three as well or is it just scope one and two so i yeah it's very vague the um one one of the things i'm wondering wondering about is the the city and government goals here right so the that those those were up way over the the previous reporting period as well there's uh 823 cities that have that have committed to this are the city and government the regional government goals more important less important if and are they in sync right so are they in the same places are are those companies aligned with those cities that that's that's something i'm curious about so yeah i think maybe this is an area where we need to be holding people's um feet to the fire if you will well and activists are i mean i one of the ones that struck me this week, uh, Morgan Stanley made a uh, an announcement about uh, reaching net zero financed emissions by 2050. By the way, that sort of is net zero energy use, net zero carbon, net zero deforestation, water, materials, and this is 
net zero financed emissions. I guess uh, anyway, we have to read the details. And just about everybody from the 350 to the Sierra Club uh, panned it. Um, and so this is, I think, this is, I think, going to be an issue uh, as we sort of use that phrase increasingly without necessarily having uh, the the metrics or the definitions behind it. So we will, and, and I don't know, it's to your questions around cities and states. Yeah. Uh, how about the companies operating within those cities yeah, and states? Exactly. Are they, are they going to be uh, going along for that uh, as well? But let's switch over to a different story that, that I think was uh, uh, also, you know, in this vein, that it was Walmart. Um, mm-hmm. Walmart made a number of commitments and one of them, uh, was that they were going to make their entire fleet zero emission by 2040. And that includes uh, 6,500 semi-trucks and 4,000 passenger vehicles, so a little over 10,000 vehicles. Um, that's a big deal. They had never been talking in those terms before. They've been talking about fuel efficiency, and they'd done a number of things around that. They'd ordered some Tesla, those uh, those uh, semi-trucks that are still about to come out uh uh, from from Tesla uh, battery powered trucks, basically, uh, but they hadn't gone to this level, and and that's a big deal. They just realized, and they as they told uh, told our our colleague Katie Fernbacher um, that just more needs to be done, and they wanted to uh, not only get to net zero, but in order to get to net zero, they needed to address the fleets, but they wanted to send a signal to the market. And I think that is a really critical thing. That, that and kudos to them for thinking in those terms that they it's not just about their own emissions, it's not just around their own performance and 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 commitments. It's around making the market better for everyone. So I I, I like that story. I think that's a great model for for other companies. I agree that. I was intrigued. You, you mentioned the semis already, the, the truck part of this, but I'm also intrigued by the passenger vehicle part. How so? Because we, we have been hearing a lot about trucks, right? And there's this whole big um, renewable natural gas movement going on, um, you know, as a transition to becoming totally electric with these these larger vehicles. But I think I think it's important to remember that there's a lot of smaller vehicles um, like cars and so forth that take people around on service calls and, um, you know, corporate salespeople and so forth. And we haven't really been talking about those those passenger fleets yeah. all that much, the, yeah. the passenger vehicle fleet. So I feel like that that part of this also was important to me because it sends a signal to the Fords and GMs of the world that. They need to they need to move themselves too, right? Because they need to up their ambition, and and Walmart wants to buy those those vehicles. So yeah. Well, um, it's it's a great initiative, and uh, look forward to seeing if they can pull it off. But let's move over to a third, and definitely not the least story here, which is one that you did, Heather. Um, an encounter with with two extraordinary women who have put together a new book. I'll let you pick up the story from there. Yes. So our our friend Catherine Wilkinson, the the, the uh, editor in chief of the Project Drawdown book that came out uh, several years ago. How many years ago now? Oh my gosh, several years ago, right? 
Um, Probably three, I'm guessing. Yeah, Yeah, right. So the solutions to uh, to climate and drawing down carbon emissions and so forth. Uh, Catherine Wilkinson has teamed up with uh, marine biologist Diana Elizabeth Johnson on a new anthology called All We Can Save. And it's it's a compendium, if you will, a, a, a collection of essays and poems and, and personal reflections from, from women in the climate movement. And the reason they did this was to amplify, if you will, to, to pass the mic to the, the female climate leaders who don't always get their attention. There's, there's a great anecdote at the beginning of the book um, about this, this woman who was one of the first to, to really come up with the concept of, of global warming and to be do, doing good science on it. And she, she, this was way before it got established by, by the men in, in the field. And she never got credit for it. Um, she's not forgotten. So there's a lot of, by the way, I actually something that I didn't mention in the article, but both of them are, are doctors. They have their doctorate. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of women out there that just don't get their due. And so that was what they were trying to do with this book. There are names that you will know. Uh, our friend Janine Benyus, or I shouldn't say our friend. She's maybe she's your friend, but she's she's she very good friend. to us. Yes, sure. um, she's very, very good to us. The, the sort of uh, biomimicry pioneer. Um, Rihanna Gunn-Wright is in here. The Sunrise Movement co-founder of uh, Varshini Prakash. Um Naomi Klein, the journalist, and there's, those are names you know, but there's a lot of names you don't know. And I think that's part of their point is they wanted to draw attention to all the really good work that's going on um, and just help start the dialogue and, and draw attention, not just to women, but also to um, other often overlooked pioneers in the movement, such as indigenous, indigenous act- activists and, and people who are working on environmental justice issues. So I just think it's a great timed book uh, um, and just a wonderful way for them to pa- for them to pass the mic to to, to these women. Yeah, and a great long uh, Q and A that you did with them, and uh, it's a great read. Thank you. They were a lot of fun to, to interview. I, I I really enjoyed it. Last week, Facebook announced the launch of a climate science information center, which it described as a dedicated space on Facebook with factual resources from the world's leading climate organizations and actionable steps people can take in their everyday lives to combat climate change. And like so many things on Facebook these days, it quickly became both praised and controversial. So joining me now to sort all this out is Facebook's Director of Sustainability, Edward Palmieri. Hey, Edward. Hey, Joe. How are you? Doing great, thanks. Uh, So for those who haven't visited it yet, give us a little flavor of of what's in the Climate Science Information Center. Yeah, thanks. Uh, So the Climate Science Information Center is uh, a dedicated separate space on Facebook. And the goal is is to connect the community on Facebook with factual resources from the world's leading climate organizations. Um, it pulls together a whole host of information through different modules and even includes some actionable steps that people can take in their everyday lives. Um, it, we, we really wanted to create a space where people could connect to a range of this important science-based information, especially given how much um, other information is out there. So this was modeled, I think, in part on the COVID-19 Information Center that. 
Facebook launched it. What did you learn from that about communicating with a Facebook audience on pressing issues? Yeah, absolutely correct, Joel. Um, so these hubs, and you know, we we reserved these hubs for the most you know kind of pressing global issues. As you mentioned, COVID is one of them. And what we've learned is that we can put information in front of um, you know several billion people. And I think on the COVID hub, you know, hundreds of millions of people have inter- interacted with it, and we hope to see. Um, increasing numbers of people interacting with the Climate Science Information Center. And, you know, what we've seen is that there's a huge important role we can play in elevating the voices of, um, you know, confirmed, solid, science-based information around climate and how important it is to make sure that people have easy access to curated content like that when they're facing, you know, the things that are now everyday occurrences around the world around climate change. You don't have to look very far, unfortunately, these days, whether you're in California or in Asia or anywhere around the world to see um, how your own personal life and your local community is being impacted by climate change. Yeah, if you want to understand what the reality of climate change, you kind of just look out the window these days, at least uh, here in California. Uh, So there's been as I said, a certain amount of praise and a certain amount of criticism. And, and the criticism, I'll quote this from a, a story that I saw online from on, a, on CBS News. It said, Facebook's biggest problem isn't a paucity of accurate information, but rather that it allows conspiracy theories, distortions, and fake news to circulate widely on the platform. And this was specific to climate change. And so that's been, I think, a, a challenge for a lot of people on this. But how are you seeing that? And, and what, if anything, are you doing to mitigate some of the misinformation that people say is on the site? Yep. Thank you, Joel. It's a really important point. And I think we're absolutely concerned about misinformation on the site. And our fact-checking program is one tactic to address that. And you're seeing on the site, whether it's climate misinformation or other topics, that um, content is flagged and reviewed and depending on the independent fact checkers determination labeled um, as misinformation when appropriate and then that label appears um, for people that are being exposed to that content but importantly um, the content is uh, once labeled misinformation is not uh, distributed with the same amount of rigor that other content on facebook is distributed so the hope is is to limit distribution of that information and also inform people about the fact-checking status of that information um, in real time as they're coming across the information. And many choose then not to click through and bother reading the information because it's been fact-checked as um, as false. But what, what we also have realized is that there's another side of the coin that is equally important, which is to continue in parallel with efforts Um, We have to do both at the same time in parallel with efforts to fight misinformation on the platform is to elevate science-based, solid, you know, highly reputable information around climate change on the platform. We do this with those other, the other hubs and the other uh, critical issues of the day um, around elections and COVID and, and the like. And climate change is equally important. And putting that information in front of people so that they can access the best of the best information 
um, in working with the IPCC um, and participating organizations, I'm really proud of our first portfolio of content on the Hub. And this is something we will continue to work on um, in the coming uh, weeks as we roll out to more countries. We launched last week with the US, UK, France, and Germany. We're hoping to add more countries soon and really be committed to elevating that Climate Science Information Center um, for people so that they can learn um, the, the best that science has to offer around climate change and make decisions about their life and interpret those events, like you mentioned, you, you don't have to look but out the window to see it oftentimes and help them interpret um, what's going on around them to make decisions and choices for themselves. How will you measure success of the Climate Information Center? You know, I, I think we're going to have to continue to look at all of the hubs and in particular the Climate Science Information Center to study how we can evaluate success and what what data-driven approaches we want to deploy. I think one basic measure is understanding engagement at a basic level, how many people are um, uh, having the opportunity to see the center and um, the potential to click on it, how many people are clicking through. There are certain ways to measure time spent within the hub and the like and understand what content is resonating the most with the people that are visiting the hub. So hopefully keep evaluating and evolving that over time. And my hope is, is that as we continue to learn more through people's engagement with the hub and continue to engage with these amazing partners um, who bring us this, this science, that we'll find ways to continue to not only evolve the way we populate the Climate Science Information Center with very helpful and actionable information, but also find ways to talk about how we've measured our success. Edward, do you ever feel that the more Facebook does, the more it's criticized? So why bother? You know, it, it's it's easy to kind of go down that um, that rabbit hole, but I think at Facebook we know that we have the privilege to be in the position to provide these services globally, and that privilege comes with a lot of responsibility. And I think as I look and I learned from all of our executive teams, I don't see them shying away from these hard challenges. I see them rising to the challenge, embracing criticism, and most importantly, listening to people that are um, upset about something because oftentimes through that engagement, we can learn how to be better. So, it, you know, it, it is difficult because sometimes, you know, you know that you have the best of intentions. You know you've been working really hard to launch something that you really think can impact the world. And in my case, in my world, fight climate change. And I remain really proud of the team that we have at Facebook working both operationally on our net zero goals to drive down our carbon emissions, um, both in our operations and our value chain. Joe, in combination with the Climate Science Information Center, we announced our net zero goals for our supply chain. And, you know, I, I can't be more proud of the progress we've made in driving our operational emissions down. We've reduced them more than 75%. In fact, we're going to go net zero this year and take that same rigor and apply it and, and partner with our um, the uh, suppliers in our value chain to bring those same results there. That sort, of, that sort of work and that sort of progress and taking this first step with the Climate Science Information Center really keeps me coming back at it because I know that we can make a real difference 
in the world and we can help bring about real change to fight climate change and avoid temperature increase that's more than 1.5 degrees. But also I know that the criticism is an important part of the process and we need to embrace people that have concerns and, and work with them as much as possible to help make the products and services we bring better and better each time. Um, so th that's the perspective I keep and I have been watching our leadership for years now and um, I'm very proud of the way we, we stay true to our, um, our commitments and really try to make those changes. You can find the Climate Science Information Center, facebook.com slash climate science info, or just type climate change into any Facebook search box. Edward Palmieri is the Director of Sustainability at Facebook. Thanks so much, Edward. Thank you, Joel. Stay safe and healthy. Wall is the largest venture capital firm focused on technologies and innovations related to the global real estate industry. This year, it took several big steps toward embedding a focus on sustainable business practices into its investment strategy. In January, the company announced the Carbon Impact Initiative with the intention of helping, quote, climate forward, end quote, real estate companies reduce carbon emissions and deploy technologies toward that end. And in June, Fifth Wall became a certified B Corporation. Joining me to chat about the firm's commitment to sustainability is Brendan Wallace, co-founder and managing partner. Hello, Brendan. Hey, Heather. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your time. Before we delve deeper into Fifth Wall's commitments, give us an elevator pitch on the organization. Why is it different from traditional venture firms? I think, you know, what makes Fifth Wall unique is our focus on the built environment. So broadly, that includes the whole real estate industry. So we're a venture capital fund where we look to invest in this collision between technology and innovation and the real estate industry. And most people are shocked with, frankly, how large the real estate industry is as a percent of the economy. So the real estate industry is the single largest sector of the U.S. economy. It's 13% of U.S. GDP. Um, it also, as we'll talk about, I think, in the future, um, has a disproportionate impact on carbon emissions. And there's a lot that can be done to bring the real estate industry forward with respect to technology and innovation. So what Fifth Wall has done is we focus on this category, and we've raised a significant amount of capital, in our case, $1.4 billion, about 900 million of that comes from large owner-operator developers of real estate that we introduce to technologies that can actually improve their business. So I guess if I were to summarize that, we're very focused on innovation for the real estate industry, and our investors are the actual users, the partners, the adopters of the very technologies and solutions that we're investing into. So before we get into that a bit more deeply, why did Fifth Wall decide to become a certified B Corp? You know, we really value our position in the real estate industry in the sense that we're the largest, we're the most active, we're the most institutional fund focused on the real estate industry investing in new innovations for their industry. And in that sense, we thought we had a responsibility to kind of be a beacon for the industry. Obviously, we're going to talk about you know, our carbon impact initiative, and that's one part of it. But we wanted to set an example so that 
when we were working with our large real estate partners, groups like Heinz and Marriott and British Land, these very institutional large real estate companies, we ourselves could kind of walk the walk of the talk, right, that we were actually doing with them to help them progress their businesses, both with respect to sustainability, but also just with respect to building better, more sustainable companies themselves. And so, you know, with 60 corporate partners across 11 countries in the real estate industry, Fifth Law, I think, just has an example to set. And we wanted to do so very formally in a way that I think would set a great precedent for our partners. So the global real estate industry does have a major impact on emissions. And frankly, we've been talking about that for quite a while. So what's behind the heightened focus uh, on, on getting getting right now, and also net zero, net zero status, carbon neutrality, that sort of thing seems to be just a, a much larger meme, especially with the companies like that are the ones that you're working with. So most people are actually shocked to realize how contributive the real estate industry is to the global climate crisis. So the real estate industry is responsible for 40% of all energy consumption annually. It emits 30% of total global greenhouse gases, and it consumes 40% of all raw materials. I mean, that's staggering, right? And I think when sustainability is talked about, the spotlight is often on other industries, heavy manufacturing and transportation. But the culpability of the real estate industry is so extreme, and it's, it's kind of this culprit that's been hiding in, in plain sight. And so in the last three years, that started to shift. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and the reason it started to shift, I would say, is this confluence of three unique forces. Um, the first is actually from tenants themselves. So both consumers, but also like large corporations that are leasing space are saying, we have environmental standards as an organization, and we expect our landlord to adhere to the same ethos that we do, right? And so there's certain criteria that, 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 that when, they're, when they're enforced on landlords and saying, we won't lease space from you if you don't meet these specific criteria, that affects the demand for space. So call that natural market dynamics. On the other hand, you also have regulators, right? In cities like Los Angeles and New York that have mandated carbon neutrality by very specific dates and with fairly aggressive fines for non-compliant real estate owners. So now what's happened is you can't move a building, right? Unlike other industries, the nature of real estate is it's highly locationally dependent. And so real estate owners are saying, well, we're going to have to get to carbon neutrality by much more aggressive timeframes than we ever expected. And the third thing that is colliding with the real estate industry is capital markets. And this has actually been happening for quite some time, but large allocators of equity capital, debt capital, even insurance providers are saying, we will preferentially deploy capital to low or no carbon impact real estate. And so all of this has kind of thrust the spotlight on the real estate industry. And it, it, it's, I think, forced CEOs in the real estate industry to accept that they need to do something. However, and this is where I think Fifth Wall's carbon impact initiative steps in, we haven't seen that thing done. We haven't seen that big leap forward. And so we're excited to help move the real estate industry in that direction. Tell me about the Carbon Impact Initiative. What technologies might we see uh, you invest in as part of that? What, what's your mission? So, you know, what we want to do is we want to help the real estate industry invest in the very solutions that are going to bring it 
to carbon neutrality, right? That is, that is the ambition of it. And what's interesting and important to point out is that for an industry that is so culpable in the climate crisis, you'd expect to see a commensurate commitment to invest in the very technologies, the hardware solutions, the software solutions, the alternative energy solutions that will actually help it achieve net zero. And you've seen obviously what Microsoft has done, you've seen what Amazon has done. So companies that have far lower footprints than the real estate industry have committed billions of dollars to new innovation. The real estate industry hasn't done that. And instead, a lot of the commitments that you do see out of the real estate industry to net zero, they're actually really offsets, right? So you're simply continuing to contribute as much as you did previously. You're just simply buying your way out of it through offsets. So when we saw this, we said, that's wrong, right? We should aim to move the real estate industry forward. And perhaps what they're struggling with is a collective action problem, which is that individually, any real estate owner acting on their own can't identify the right solutions, can't invest in those solutions with enough scale to see them to success, such that you could deploy them at your assets and reduce its carbon footprint. So what we've done with all of our funds is we've said, let's bring the industry together. Let's build a consortium of sustainability forward real estate owners. Let's build a huge pool of capital and let's invest into the very technologies that are going to help these real estate owners get to carbon neutrality with new technology, new hardware, new software, not just through offsets. So that's the vision for the fund. And so in terms of where we're going to invest, it's a number of just different spaces that I think we're really excited about. Obviously, HVAC, HVAC and airflow, um, decarbonization technologies, which includes you know, both traditional green tech, but also energy efficiency for buildings, which is highly integrated into building systems and what's broadly called like smart building technology. And there's also just climate resilience and mitigation technology to just improve the longevity of assets. But there are so many categories where I think the real estate industry hasn't deployed capital into the technologies that will help it actually achieve carbon neutrality. So I have to ask this follow-up. Obviously, we're dealing with the potential well, not the potential, the eventual uh, return to offices after COVID-19 and when the pandemic um, is, is addressed by a vaccine or, or what have you. So is there anything that you're going to prioritize based on that? Um, obviously, the real estate industry is quite, uh, is quite in turmoil right now. So any particular priority? So, you know, as, as our fund looks to invest, I think we're both looking to invest in technologies that are going to have a long-term impact on the real estate industry. So, you know, I think people have had this brief respite where they've recognized that by utilizing assets less, you can actually reduce the carbon footprint of a building. But however, that's not sustainable. And so as people return to work, I think what our major hope is that tenants start asking the right questions. So it's great if your building is LEED certified, and it's great if your landlord says, we're committed to becoming net zero by X date. But I think it's important that tenants actually start asking questions of their landlords to say, well, how are you achieving net zero? Are you doing that through purchasing offsets? Or are you actually doing that with retrofitting your buildings? Are you, are you doing that with deploying new technology, new hardware, new systems into your assets, new alternative energy sources that can actually help you achieve that in reality? And so I guess the, the hope that we would have is that tenants start to ask the right questions of their landlords um, in, frankly, coming back to work. 
One final question. Have you made any investments yet? And if not, when might we expect to see some? We have not made any investments yet as we're still actively raising the fund, um, but we would expect to start deploying in 2021. Thank you so much for your time today. You just heard from Brendan Wallace, co-founder and managing partner of Fifth Wall. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com 350 to find more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our six free e-newsletters. You can go to greenbiz.com newsletters and find out more about them. We love your comments, questions, and tips. Email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. It's my turn to be off, so Heather will be back next week with the aforementioned Katie Fernbacher for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com.